This afternoon we will be reading in our Lord's Day and speaking a little about true faith and what that looks like. And so in connection with that we'll be reading together from 1 John 4, the verses 13 to 19. 1 John 4, the verses 13 to 19. You'll be able to find that on page 1401 of your pew Bible. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us so far. We'll now also turn together to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and You'll be able to find that on page 523 of your pew Bible. So up to this point, we have recognized in Heidelberg Catechism, as we've been working our way through it section by section, that we need Jesus Christ. That's the basic point of the first, uh, the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism, how great our sins and misery are. We're basically confessing we need Jesus Christ. We need a deliverer, and this deliverer is Jesus Christ. And now we've moved into the second section, which is our deliverance, and it speaks about Jesus Christ, our deliverer, and how he has become our mediator. He has become the one who stands for us before God, and we are righteous in him. So this is where Lord's Day 7 brings us. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And so follows the Apostles' Creed, as we just confessed it earlier this afternoon. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do you know the love that God has for you? I think that most of us here today probably do. Most of you here today have been exposed to this knowledge all your life. John 3 verse 16 is second nature to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know of the love of God. But today our catechism encourages us to go a little deeper, to examine ourselves a little more closely. What are the two parts of true faith? The catechism asks us. And it teaches us that first of all, it's a knowledge of the contents of our faith. Yes, we know of the love of God. But in the second place, it's also a firm confidence that this is also true for me. The Apostle John today also invites us to reflect on that certainty. He says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. You don't just know, you believe. There's a certainty that's present there. And I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you, beloved, to reflect on that certainty that's present in your own hearts. To reflect on the words of the Apostle John here. It can be tempting to say, well, that's the Apostle John. He is an apostle. And more than that, if you look at his gospel, he's the apostle whom Jesus loved. Of course he's more certain. That may be true. But he's writing to an audience of church members, and these church members are just like you and me. These are church members who can, he says, have this certainty. And the truth is that as Reformed Christians, we should just as much seek and recognize and treasure our assurance and our certainty as we seek and recognize our sin. Because we don't only value knowing about our sin. If you consider our confessions, the vast majority of the Heidelberg Catechism isn't just about knowing our sin, but the vast majority of the Heidelberg is about the certainty that Jesus has saved us and that his work was enough. It's Lord's Days 5 to 33. The Canons of Dort also, another one of our confessions, has an entire chapter Chapter 5, dedicated to the assurance that we as believers can have. Reformed Christians are not gloomy Christians. We as Christians delight in the fact that our joy is true for us. And why do we delight in this? Well, today I preach to you the gospel of grace under the following theme. By the Spirit, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And we'll see, first of all, a true confession, and secondly, a true love. So how can we have this certainty? For a catechism, this is a statement that has been already made. It's a statement that's been made in Lord's Day 1. It says that because Christ has bought us with his blood, therefore... By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. 
So keep that in mind. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God from start to finish. You know because you learned. That's the first part of this question and answer 21 of this Lord's Day that we have just looked at. You learned. It's a sure knowledge whereby I accept is true all that God has revealed to us in his word. But having heard it and learned it, the Holy Spirit also convicts you of its truth. That's what's meant here by I accept as true. We believe what the Bible teaches us. We know and believe it. We believe, yes, I know that I need God. I need salvation through Jesus Christ. I need to let my idols go. By the grace of the Spirit, my submission is not just a show. But Christ is my Lord, and I need to hold on to Christ alone. This is what the Apostle John points us to here as well. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, so we recognize that the world needed saving. We recognize that Jesus is the Savior, and then we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So his right to rule over us. And so you believe. You are in Christ. But how can I know for sure? You may be struggling with that question. How can I be certain? You can be certain because of our passage today. Once again, it points to the work of the Spirit. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. But what does that actually mean? The Spirit who is within you assures you that you abide in Christ, that you are in Christ, that you belong to Him, that you will receive eternal life. But how can I know that the Spirit is abiding in me? That can be a fair question. Maybe you fear you have a false confession, right? You can see, perhaps, if you've read in the news, you can see where other people who have professed the name of Christ have fallen away. But look at what the Holy Spirit convicts you to say. We have seen and we testify, verse 14, that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. That's what the Holy Spirit convicts you to say. And we confess in verse 15 that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, says that this is a confession which only a true believer can make. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. If you confess that Jesus is not just Lord overall, but Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Jesus is your Lord. If you, by your declaration, also submit in obedience 
to his good and perfect right over your life. You declare that he has right over your life. That's what it means to call him Lord. A Lord is someone who has right and authority. You recognize this. And you come to him whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, whose rule is good. You recognize him as Lord. That is what it means with that word confession. And we need to make that clear as well. This isn't just something that you say with your mouth. But it's you say with your mouth and believe in your heart. Someone out in the world can just say the words that Jesus is Lord, yes. If you were to ask a classmate or a coworker who is not a Christian to say the words Jesus is Lord, there wouldn't be a divine intervention that would stop them from saying those words. But it's not true for them. It's not real for them. Because although they say the words with their mouths, they're not truly confessing it out of a reality that they know to be true. They don't believe it in their hearts. But you, you accept as true as our Lord's Day says all that God has revealed in his word, including all that it says about Christ. You submit to Jesus' rule in your life. 1 John 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. God abides in him because it's the Holy Spirit that is within him, living within him, that convicts him to say this out of a reality that he knows to be true. God abides in him, and he in God. I know that I am in God, Because the Spirit is at work in me to confess this truly. Because no one can truly confess that Jesus is Lord except if God the Holy Spirit abides in him. But if it was just a confession, we might still be uncertain. If it was just a confession we might still reflect back on it and maybe have doubts. And so God gives us a second gift to grant us certainty. The Holy Spirit doesn't just cause us to confess, but his presence in our lives, him dwelling in our lives, means that there's something else that comes out. It means that we bear fruit. And in this way, the fruit that we bear is a gift to us as well because it's something that grants us assurance. It grants us further assurance. I want to know that God's at work in me, right? So why would I not eagerly look for this fruit in my life? This fruit is evidence of God living in us to grant us that assurance of faith. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Each in a growing measure in proportion with our faith. Each part, each one doing its part 
in giving us peace and assurance that God is at work. And each under the umbrella of the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. So it's not just that we confess a truth that is grounded in a reality that we know to be true, but it's also in the second place a true love that we see coming out in our hearts. The Bible teaches us that the greatest of these fruits, the fruit of the Spirit who's within us, is love. It's no surprise that this would then be such a huge part of what the Apostle Paul speaks about in his message here, isn't it? It's a huge part, uh, sorry, the Apostle John, it's a huge part of John's message. Because, as it says in John 4, verse 16, God is love. So what does that look like? What does it mean to have this God who is love living inside of us? Well, here I want to draw your attention to that word for love that we've discussed here in Own Sound before. The Greek word for love that's used here is agape. Now the reason that we need to kind of zoom in on this, kind of focus on this, is because our Our big word, love, has so much packed into it. So many different meanings. And Greek actually has several of those meanings divided into separate words, separate sections, separate categories. So the Greek word for love here is agape. Affectionate brotherly love is philia. Sexual love is eros, from where we get the word erotic. But this is a specific kind of love, agape love. This is a love which in the first place desires to delight the object of its love. And in the second place it desires not to grieve the object of its love. So this is what we look at. This is what we look for, a love which is in our hearts that in the first place desires to delight the object of its love, and in the second place desires not to grieve the object of its love. And in this way, it's beautiful actually that the Holy Spirit chooses this word to express this to us because this is a very human kind of love as well. It's a love that many of us have experienced between each other as humans, maybe between parents and their children. A parent, when they're dealing with their child, they have that love for their child. They want what's best for their child. They love them and they desire to delight the object of their love, their child. And that doesn't mean giving in to all of the whims of their child because you want your child to grow and to flourish in the long run as well. But you deal with them because you love them. And siblings between each other, you love each other, desiring to delight your fellow sibling, desiring not to grieve them, ideally. Between spouses, As you grow together, between 
boyfriends and girlfriends. This is something that we understand. You want to delight the object of your love. And you don't want to grieve the object of your love. The Bible is not using strange language here. You want to give joy to the one who's on the receiving end of this. You don't want to hurt them, but you want to give them joy. And therefore, it's impossible to separate this love from action because the very nature of this love means that if it's not acting upon this desire, it's not truly this love. Because if you're not wanting to grieve them, if you're not wanting to hurt them, then you will act to change on that. If you are wanting to delight the object of your love, if you want to bring them joy, then you will move to act on whatever it is that brings joy to the one you love. This is something that we recognize in this world. And the Apostle John here teaches us that this is a love, this love that we recognize that we can also see reflected in our hearts as a love which God himself has placed in us that is now directed towards God. Human beings can have this love for each other, but there's only one possible way for us to have this love towards God. And that's if God himself puts it in us. And so we need to pay special attention here to what the Apostle John is saying in this passage when he uses that word love. What the gospel of Christ describes here is a change that happens inside of a person. Change that happens not just with affections, not just with your feelings, but a change that comes out in your life. With Jesus as your Lord, your body, it becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the God of love himself is living inside of you. So if you are a temple and and God is living inside of you, This means that, follow closely here, God is living inside of you, God is love, and therefore God's love lives inside of you. That love, agape, love which is action, wanting to give joy to the one who is loved and not wanting to hurt the one who is loved, is within you. This grants you assurance because you see that this is the love that's directed at your heavenly father. And there's only one possible way for that to happen if God himself is dwelling inside of you. So we have this confession that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, that Jesus is Lord. And then we have this love which God places in our hearts. But it's at this point in time that you may be asking, well then, how does sin fit into all of this? Does sin fit into all of this? It's a real part of life. It's a real question that many of us, all of us, struggle with.
Love does not mean in this broken world with who we are as creatures who are being sanctified from day to day, being made holy from day to day. Having this love in our hearts does not mean we will not have to struggle with sin. But what love does mean is that we fear and hate the destructive power of sin. Not fear sin itself, not fear the devil, but fear and hate the destructive power of sin if we act upon it. Love increases our awareness of this destructive power of sin. We should fear and hate it when we don't keep Christ's commands, but not because we doubt his love for us. I want to make that clear. Not because we doubt his love for us, but because we love him. Just like we should hate and fear the destructive power of sin in our selfish behavior in other relationships, like in our friendships or marriage, we should, hear, we, we should fear and hate the destructive power of that which is not an expression of this agape love because it hurts those whom we love who are on the receiving end because it is sin. It damages the relationships that's between us and those who are around. And you love Christ, so you don't want to grieve him. So yes, sin does fit into all of this. We are not living in a world, the Apostle John here is not living in a world that's suddenly miraculously devoid of sin. In fact, he himself confesses whoever says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. But it doesn't mean when you fall into sin that suddenly it casts everything into doubt. Rather, it means that when you sin and you grieve, when you sin and you grieve for your sin, you don't grieve first of all because you did a bad thing. Doing wrong should grieve us, don't get me wrong here. But you grieve because you have brought grief to the one whom you love. And if this is the case, as you come before the Lord and you come in repentance after having sinned again, you fall down on your knees and you pray to him asking for forgiveness and you grieve because you have grieved the one whom you love, then you know that it is God who is at work in you because it is love that has brought you to repent. It is love that has brought you to say that you are sorry for your sins. If you grieve and you turn from what you've done and you hate it because you love him, then even when you stumble, even when you are caught in sin for a time, you can be reminded that God is at work within you, that his Holy Spirit is living within you. 
And then when you come to him in repentance and you come to him in sorrow for what you've done, you don't need to fear that he will not receive you as you repent. Because God loves you. And therefore that love lives inside of you. Boys and girls, are you afraid when you do wrong and you say it to your parents that you've done something that's wrong? That they'll throw you out of the house? No, you're not. Because you know that they love you. They might be very upset with you for a time. But if you truly come in repentance and you tell them about it, they'll forgive you. Because God loves you, and therefore that love lives inside of you, you are now able to respond. Without that love that's first inside of you, you would never love him. Without that love that is inside of you, you would never sorrow over your sins because you have grieved the one you love. You might be sad about the outcome of those sins. You might be sad about the impact that those sins had on other people, but you would never sorrow over the fact that you have grieved the one you love. And your repentance, without God living within you, your repentance would never be real. And yet it is real. And we respond in love because God loves you and because God lives inside of you. Verse 19, right? We love him because he first loved us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That love is proof that God lives within us. And that is why, in verse 19, you may have been wondering about that, that is why perfect love drives out fear. Verse 18, verse 19. Verse 18. Perfect love drives out fear. So when our sins cause us to doubt our salvation, this love, it casts out fear. And the Greek word here is the idea of, of not, just, not just pushing something over to the side, not just having it in our minds and all right, I'll, I'll push that away to a corner of my mind and I'll try not to think about it anymore. No, that word is one of throwing far away, rejecting violently. No, I will not be afraid because I love Jesus and I want to live for him and I would not love him if I did not belong to him. If he did not love me first and if he did not live in me, so I will leave this sin behind and rest in the assurance that I am not lost but I am saved and belong to my faithful Savior. So when our sins cause us to doubt our salvation, this love casts out fear and causes us to declare, I will leave this sin behind and rest in the assurance that I am not lost, but I am saved. And in the second place, we should also rest in the light, in the evidence of God's grace to us. When we not just face sin in this way, 
but also when we do what's right out of love. We delight in the proof that God is living inside of us. If I do what's right out of love for God, then that means that God is living inside of me. And that gives me reason for joy. That love is the outcome of the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. Because as that love-filled action grows inside of us, it grants us boldness to do what is right. Verse 17, love that has been perfected among us is this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Just like God, who is love, acts out of that love that's in this world, we who are in this world love others with the love of God that's inside of us. And this word that is that means perfect. It's a picture of something that is brought to completion. But it's a picture of something that we already have as seed within our hearts that is growing towards that final day of completion. And as we see the evidence of this love and it's being perfected within us, perfected among us, and we can see the fruit of that, then we can grow in boldness. We can have boldness in our hearts as we approach judgment today. We can grow in assurance that as that day of judgment draws near, because our actions prove to ourselves that God has loved us and that God lives inside of us and we belong, we can be confident. If we want that confidence that our salvation is not only for others but also for me, Lord's Day 7, beloved, we need to open our eyes to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. We need to look for it, to look for that confession, to look for that confession that's grounded in a reality that we know to be true. We need to look for that love that's within us, those two things which the Holy Spirit works within us. We need to look for it and delight in it and rejoice it and embrace this gift. That's why we do what is good. Not because it earns us anything, but because we love him and we want to live to his glory and it grants us assurance that he is living within us. It's God's gift to us. The direct result of God living in us. Delighting in doing good is the gift of change that the Holy Spirit, God himself, gives us as evidence of love that is within our lives. And to walk away from this love, to walk away from doing this, would be to walk away from God's gift. But we love God. So why would we walk away from the free gift that the one we love offers us, the gift that changes us, that grants us assurance? So, beloved of God, you may have wondered why I use that phrase so often, but for those who believe in Christ, who confess him as Lord, it's true. Beloved of God, you are loved by God. So, beloved of God, delight 
in the truth of the gospel. Delight in the fact that you are convicted of that truth. Because if it were not for the Holy Spirit at work within you, you would not be. Delight in the fact that this convicts you to declare Jesus Christ as Lord. Delight the fact that you are changed by the gospel message and the love that is worked in your hearts. Delight in the fact that the God of love lives inside you, building an agape love for God in you, which overflows to an agape, Christ-like love for those who are around you. Let your confession of Jesus' lordship and his love that is alive inside of you let you respond with this assurance. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Amen.